Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, the podcast that will release no episode before it's time. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talked to Ross Bingham of Critical Mass Selections, which is a wine importing company specializing in uh, natural wines from Italy and elsewhere, largely Italy at this point. I've known Ross for a few years now. He's got one of the best palates in the business. He's a mensch, he's a great businessman, and he believes really passionately in what he does and the producers that he works with. He spent some time working his way around, doing a lot of different things before getting to where he is now. And uh, I think without having done all that, he wouldn't be where he is now. It's an inspiring story for those of us who've always had trouble working for other people, who feel the itch of a creative impulse of some form or another, um, some kind of allegiance to high standards of our own making, but without which we don't feel like we're ourselves. Uh, I like him a lot. I like his book a lot. And, uh, I really like the trajectory that brought him to where he is, which is, as regular listeners know, a common thread through the now 15 or so episodes of this that I've done. You can find him at criticalmassselections.com, and he is criticalmassselections on Instagram. I often tell people when it comes to natural wine, which can be a bewildering sector of the marketplace, that it's more important to learn what the back label says rather than the front. And on the back label, the importers are listed. So when you learn the palate, the ethos of a particular importer, and you learn to trust them, you can buy wine on the basis of the fact that they brought it into the country. And I find that to be much more useful than trying to parse the front label, especially in the natural biz, where a lot of producers have opted out of various appellation regimens uh, for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into here. But the importers function kind of like curators. They're making choices for you. And when you know their ethos and you trust their palate, it makes for a much easier shopping experience if you just flip the bottle around and see who brought it in. I will buy any of Ross's wines, uh, even if I've never had it before, just because I trust him that much. There are a few others that I feel the same way about. And if you listen to the interview, that's how he found his way into this part of the business, by realizing that there were certain importers whose wines he kept gravitating towards. So you can have the same experience. Uh, learn to turn the bottle around and read the name on the back. It makes a big difference. So here's me talking to Ross Bingham on a beautiful May day in my dining room about how he got to be who he is. She's um, in Puglia. Oh, that's, is there a lot going on down there? Um, no. No? But, um, you know, we've got two growers from Puglia. Yeah. Um, one with one and a half hectares and one with 80. That's incredible. Two very different philosophies. Yeah. No, actually similar philosoph uh, philosophies, but, um, you know, just different level of, different scale of production. <laughs> Valentina, she's the daughter of a uh, marble magnet. Oh, wow. And all that entails. A lot of quarrying down there? Yes, and her yeah. father owns it all. Wow. So she wants to put her back into the earth. Mm -hmm. So she's farming everything biodynamically, mm -hmm. you know, she's doing everything right. That's great. She makes a lot of wine. Can't wait to try it. No, it's good stuff. I've got a bottle in the car for you, actually. So oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Terrific. So, you know, it's... Uh, you know, there's a few people after her, but, you know, we managed to get her, and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm very fair. happy we did. That's very. fantastic. That's fantastic. Have you, um, have you been poking around a little more in um, France, Spain, Portugal as well? France, uh, I'm always poking. Yeah. I haven't really come up with anything. 
Spain, yes, got another grower from Spain, another one from Portugal. Mm-hmm. Two more from Spain. Are you finding that there are enough new, like really talented winemakers, not just people who say they're natural, but it's kind of sweaty, you know, mediocre juice? There's a lot of mediocre juice there. Yeah. A lot. So, yeah. Are you, are you noticing any kind of market pressure for on people to pick their game up because there is now so much and so much of it isn't that good? Um, I don't know what pressure they're under, but they don't seem to, you know... They have no trouble selling? No, so, yes, they do have trouble selling. They do, okay. All right, so, <laughs> yes, so there is some... Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, I've turned down certain wines before in the past, which I thought were mousy or just kind of not good wines, and they've ended up here anyway. Hmm. Why can people buy them anyway? But, you know, that's that's their deal. Yeah. I don't buy mousy crappy wines. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I like... That's why, I mean, you're one of the yeah. importers where I will buy anything you bring in even if right. I haven't had it before because if I see your name on the back label, I know that it's, you know... Because yeah. I know your palate. That's pretty much what we try to do anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, so how many years in are you now? Five? Five. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And everything's kind of going according to plan, roughly? <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> We're almost doubling sales every year. So yeah, that's phenomenal. That's all we can do. Yeah, yeah, that seems you know, to be about the maximum, I would think. A lot of people said it was impossible, but we are doing that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's all about cash flow. And, sure. You know. um, and so, originally, I forget, I know you were into motorcycle racing, and I know you did, did some time as a chef... Yes. So let's go back to sort of the origins up in Yorkshire and how everything kind of... Well, I'm from Lincolnshire. From Lincolnshire, okay. Which is not quite as crazy as Yorkshire. Um, what do you want to know? So what, what town was that? The town was called Gainsborough. Okay. Just outside of Gainsborough. Uh-huh. Um, like the painter. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes, he was from Gainsborough. No, he wasn't actually. Um, all the towns in the east with Borough, mm-hmm. Middlesbrough, Guysborough, Gainsborough, Peterborough, they were all... German. So England was basically cut off in half. Well, the Saxons took the east, mm-hmm. and all the um, Angles went to the west. Okay. So all the boroughs are down there. And also the Vikings came as well to my hometown. Yeah. That's, um, you know, the local river is called the Trent, uh-huh. which is Viking for trespasser. Huh. Um, most of the people I were there, they were all blonde. Hmm. It's a very blonde part of England. It isn't now, but it was. So, yeah, North Lincolnshire, um, about 30 miles to the east of Sheffield. Okay. So right on the edge of the industrial belt and um, right on the edge of the farming belt. And I grew up on a farm. Okay. So, you know, but you know, Sheffield was close. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, it wasn't then. 30 miles back then was like... It was a lot, yeah. Oh, no, you planned to go in there for like a month. Yeah. yeah. And now it's, now it's <laughs> London, a suburb, You right? talked about it for years to go, you know. Right, right. <laughs> London was 100 miles away. That was... That was that might as well be in another country. So. Uh, uh, what what kind of farm was it that you? Potato. Okay. So mon like just just potatoes. Uh, we had oh, no, we had wheat, barley, uh-huh. uh, wheat, barley, potatoes, a little bit of sugar beet, huh. but mainly it was potatoes. And was it a multi generation thing? Was it sort of your grandfather, great grandfather? My granddad had the farm next to us first. Uh huh. Um, but you know we were tenant farmers. Okay. So it was leased off the lord. Lord Bacon, who who owned who owns half of England probably a large chunk of Scotland. Hmm. Still, you know. oh uh, yeah, absolutely. They don't give up the land. No. Um, yeah, I think they own eighty percent of the United Kingdom. Still, the aristocracy. Really? Oh, yeah. the, the the whole aristocracy, not this one family. No, no, but you know they are one. You know. Right, right, right. They, they are can... pretty much one family. Yeah, that's, that's true. A problem. That's, that's true. Why yeah. They're so hideously ugly. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, so he um, he was a tenant farmer, and he leased about I think he leased about fifty acres. Okay. But he managed to save up some money and buy some land actually, like himself. And then my dad got the farm next to him, and he leased about four hundred and fifty acres. Wow. So uh, yeah, it was. So it was a big operation. Oh, it was then. Yes, it was then. Yeah. Now it's a small farm. Right. And did you work on the farm growing up? Was that sort of your job as soon as you were able? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. what I did. I played football and soccer and worked on the farm. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't work. Yeah. You know, you know driving a tractor at nine isn't work. It's, 
It's fun. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's set them in fire to, you know, feel, you know, because we used to have to burn the stubble. Mm-hmm. You know, once you'd harvested, you used to set fire to the straw. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'd go back into the earth and everything and all that. Now it's been banned by the EU, you know. For so, air quality reasons or whatever. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know. So my dad would throw me a box of matches and say, you know, go and set fire to that field, will you? Yeah, all right. That's great. Yeah, it's kind of the dream job <laughs> so for, we did, you know. for any teenage boy or whatever. Exactly, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, no, it wasn't work. <laughs> It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Right. Actually. And so when you, did you leave home to study? Uh, did I leave home to study? Or doesn't, at school or just in the world? Um, to study. No, I left, I left school very young. I left mm. school at 15. Mm. Uh, me and school didn't get on very well. Yeah. Really, to be honest with you. Um, I'm now discovering, actually, um, as my son has been diagnosed dyslexic, mm. I'm now uh. discovering that I was... 99% sure kind of dyslexic as well. So it was just incredibly difficult to read and retain, like absorb information through conventional schooling. Through conventional schooling. I mean, it's just becoming apparent to me now yeah. as I'm reading all about Finnegan and his problems. Yeah. Or his, not his problems, just like, just the way he learns. Yeah. That I was exactly the same. And it explains a lot of what happened to me when I was a kid at school and everything. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I left school at 15 um, and I started working. Mm-hmm. And so, what did you do when you left? Because it wasn't uh, farming anymore. I was a tire fitter. Uh-huh. I used to fit tires onto tractors and trucks and cars and stuff. Yeah, that was my first job. And did that? Did that? Was that sort of the uh, the the origins of your kind of obsession with va- fast vehicles? No, no, no. Actually, my dad was into motorcycles. Oh, okay. So it was my brother. So you know, I was kind of sucked along by my dad. My dad was always into motorbikes and race and. Um, Cars, Formula One, and everything. Okay. Did you have any growing up? Did you have any a fast car or any bikes or anything? No, we don't have a fast car. No, <laughs> quite the opposite. Yeah. No, we had, had a tractor. Um, we had uh, quite a few tractors. Yeah. Um, you know, I made a go kart. You know, uh-huh. I have an old pram. You know, I'm an old. <laughs> you, you know, uh, we had a couple of motorbikes on the farm, and that's mm-hmm. where I started riding a few motorbikes and stuff. You know, but basically, I played football when I was a kid. Yeah. I kicked a ball against a wall for 10 years. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, no, no, well, that's how you get good. I did the same, but with a tennis ball. You know. Right, right. <laughs> when it rained, I did the tennis ball in the barn, actually. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, all right, so you left home and you, you worked as a tire fitter, and it, yes. that, that couldn't have lasted that long. I no, imagine. it didn't, no. no, no. Then I got an apprenticeship as an apprentice, um, apprentice uh, mechanic, I guess, engineer. Yeah. At a local power station. Um, which, you know, led me to go to college, mm-hmm. engineering college, for a year or two years, but um, I didn't get on well with that. I hated it. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. I found it really boring. I could do it, but I didn't want to do it. Right. So I kind of left that. Mm-hmm. So you're now, what, eight, 18 or so? I was 17, I think, 17, almost 18, yeah. 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 Right, so yeah. then what? Uh, well, you know, um, 18 years old, you know, Margaret Thatcher's, I'm a Briton. You and I are just about the same age, right? This yeah. Is, this is 18, this would have been mid 80s? Uh, early 80s. Early 80s, okay. Early 80s, yeah. So, uh, you know, I decided to do what everyone else did. I could, you know, like I went to London. Yeah. To look for a job. Rather than just be on, you know, I mean, my hometown had like 90, 90% male unemployment in 1982. Wow. 90%. There was no work at all doing anything. She was closing down all the mines. Right. All the pits, you know, all the pits were closing. It was the middle of the miners' strike. All the factories were closing in Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield. The steelworks were closing. Yeah. Everything was closing. So, you know, the only work there was was in London. So I went to London. Huh. Well, and did you, have a, did you have a friend or something? My sister was living down there. She was going to art college down, Chelsea School of Art. Oh, cool. So I stayed with my sister for a while, and then I got my own, um, my own bed sit. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, when, and, and you were just scraping up work where you could find it, or did you...? Um, yeah, I mean, I was just happy to be working. Yeah, and what, so what were you doing? Do you know what I was doing? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, my first job in London, um, I was a tinsel ruffler. I don't even know what that is. What's it? What's it sound At like? At like Christmas time, you would like fluff up the tinsel on trees I was and things. Ruffling tinsel. That's oh exactly. 
That's all, but that, that's only a seasonal gig, I imagine. Uh, no, actually, surprisingly enough, it was all year round. It really? was really bizarre, but no, um, obviously we got quite... Well, actually, I didn't do it that long. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just say that. I did it for six months just to oh. kind of get out and get some money, but I was ruffling tinsel oh, um, for six months. So they, they have it, what, it comes in rolls or bales or something, and you kind of have to fluff well, it up so it hangs well, nicely? I operated and... the machine that made it, oh, Okay. and then it came with the machine that... Then I have to ruffle it, and I'll still ruffle you some tinsel if you have some. So uh, I don't yeah. think I do. I'm fresh out, right? <laughs> Come back around yeah. Christmas time. <laughs> Every time I look at a piece of tinsel, and go. Mm, yeah, that yeah. hasn't been well ruffled. That needs a ruffle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. So I did that for a while, and then went completely insane doing that. And yeah. then uh, I got a job at the BBC actually, working oh. in the props department. Okay. You know, you used to have to go to a job centre. Right. There was job centres back then. Where you could walk in and look, you know, look at the jobs. My hometown, there was like never a job in the job centre. Right. You used to just look around and just look around and get warm. Um, down in London, I was like, oh my God, there's jobs everywhere. Mm. The streets are paved with gold. Yeah. You know? So I got a job in the prop department at the BBC. Because yeah, you were good with your hands, you could build things. Well, I was strong. I was a farmer's son. Right. right. You could lift <laughs> I was, things. I was lifting. No, no. I was lifting things. Right. That's what right. I, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I did that for a while. Uh, for TV shows? Yeah, yeah. Doctor Who, you name it. Ah, brilliant. Yeah, we oh, used to have lunch with the Daleks. <laughs> um, yeah, I did that. I did that for nearly 18 months or something like that. And then mm-hmm. I decided to go back to college again. Okay. To do, uh, to do motor engineering. All right. So yeah. still engineering? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was something to do. You know, I, I was interested in motorcycles engines so I you know ended up doing that um, and you finished this time I did yes yes yeah. I finished that I did well in it um, but then I started racing motorcycles okay it just so happened I was as, a, as a hobby or you were actually trying to win money and no I went to um, I was just kind of riding bikes a lot and uh, um, me and my friends there was a thing called a racing school at this very famous race circuit called Donington Park. And um, you could go there and uh, they supply the bikes and everything and then you could just kind of, you know, have a crack at racing, you know, hmm. at school. Well, I went there and I was super, super quick. Yeah. I was the fastest newcomer they'd ever had at the school. And why do you think that was? Just natural ability? Just uh, just good at it innately? Uh, Did you have, a, like, a low centre of gravity or something? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. Like I, a jockey? Um, I didn't really, you know, I was quite brave, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know, I was quite good at it, maybe. Yeah. And I used my head a little bit more than most kids at that age, I'm mm-hmm. about 20 or something like that, you know. And I was using my head to think my way around the racetrack as mm-hmm. well as, you know, actually being quite quick Yeah. on a bike and being fearless as you are at 20. Um, so, yeah... You know, these guys said at the school, you know, you should start racing. You've got a really, you know, you've got a talent for this. You should do something with it. Mm-hmm. I went, all right, what do I do with it? You know, <laughs> so I started racing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was there a big scene at the time? Was it? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I, um, I bought a bike. Um, I stripped the engine down. I stripped the frame down. I rebuilt everything myself. <laughs> I rebuilt the engine and got the engine tuned. You know, I did the whole thing all from this little garage yeah. and then the garden shed and then, uh, you know, started racing. Yeah. Was it a British bike, Japanese bike? What were you, what did yeah, you Japanese. have? Japanese. Japanese, yeah. It was a Yamaha 250. Uh-huh. Yeah. Two stroke. My level of racing, the actual class of racing was the cheapest form of racing you could do. Mm-hmm. So it was... Because the bikes are really small. And cheap. And cheap, yeah. You know, you know bikes were relatively cheap then. So, you know, large races, about 47 in a race. Mm. Everyone's got the same bike, same tyres, roughly the same age group, you can imagine. Yeah. It was like rollerball. It was incredibly competitive. And yeah, and chaotic too. And presumably chaotic. dangerous with that many people that close together. Really dangerous and all, all of them crazy. All of them teenagers and in the early 20s. Right. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And was it lucrative? Did you did you win enough to make some money? Well, I got, um, you know, I started winning my second year of racing. 
Then I got sponsored by a guy down in London and mm-hmm. I got sponsored by some local businesses. And then I started winning a lot on my second season. I mean, I mean, I lost track how many races I won. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the bikes changed again. We have to get another bike, you know, this new type of bike. And um, I didn't really have the funds for it, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And I was losing a bit of interest in it. I kind of got to the point where I'm like, you know, unless I want to, you know, it's a tough sport. You know, I was yeah. hurting myself a lot. Sure. I mean, I, I mean, you must wipe out all the time, right? Yeah. Me in particular, I was kind of known for it. Because you were fearless and... and well, I was known as a guy who kind of won or crashed. Uh-huh. Which is pretty much how I think about it. Things, really. Either or. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to come second. Right. I didn't like coming second at anything. I yeah. Was, I'm still a bit like that, really. I'm pretty competitive. Yeah. So, you know, I ended up crashing a lot. <laughs> and winning a lot and crashing a lot. Yeah. Um, broke, you know, knocked myself out a few times, broke my ankle, my collarbone several times, a wrist, oh, ribs, my leg. Yikes. Uh, and then my last season, I kind of had two big crashes over 100, over 110 miles an hour, Oof. two weeks running. And you walked away from them? Um, Almost, sort of, crawled away? The one I did, one, one I walked away, the other one I got carried away. Mm. But um, I got a pretty bad head injury. Oof, yeah, that's not good. Um, like, severe smack on the head here. Yeah. Which is your short-term memory, I've found out later. Um, and, um, you know, I didn't know where I was, who I was, what my name was. Wow. That went on for about a week. Good God. So, um, you know, the doctor said, really, you should really think about stopping this. I didn't really want to, but I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right, I'll go do something else. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So um, I sold my racing bike. I sold my van. Mm-hmm. My sister was in New York City. Oh, she'd moved by then. She was already here. She was an artist in the East Village, mm. hanging out in the East Village in 1986, 85. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know? So I went to visit her and stayed for like three months. Went to California, um, you know, did a little bit of a tour of America kind of thing. And thought, mm. yeah, this is all right, yeah. Yeah, you liked it, huh? It's I hard. The East Village. Yeah, yeah you like the East Village. Yeah, I did like. Didn't it. Didn't like California, or liked it okay. Yeah, I did, but you know, it seemed like another world. Yeah, it know. is. So yeah, then um, I went back to England. I went back to the UK, yeah, and I lived in London for a while, and then I got fed up there, and then I ended up moving to Italy for a while. Okay, and what prompted that? Um, I met um, uh, two people on a boat in Egypt hmm. on the Nile. We shared a felucca. Between Aswan and Luxor or somewhere like that. And how did you? What got you to Egypt? Um, just wanted to travel around. Uh huh. I was making a lot of money in London. What? Well, so what were you doing when you went back to London? Um, I was um multiple jobs, uh, delivery driver. I was in charge of running all these construction sites all over Greater London, making sure they all had the tools and everything they needed, mm-hmm. which was perfect for me because I could just you know drive around all day and right. You know, I don't like being in one spot. Mm-hmm. And uh, ended up being a delivery driver there, a truck driver, delivering stuff around the West End of London. And then we just decided to go traveling, me and my girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. So, so you went to Egypt and, we went to Egypt, and met we went these to people. India, uh, we met these people in Egypt. Um, they were Italian? They were Italian from Rieti. Uh-huh. Um, I'm a treacher, actually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, why don't you come over for like a long weekend? So I went over there for a long weekend and that's it. Like, I'm moving here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You're not the first person to have that reaction. <laughs> no. It wasn't that easy back then. No. You know? It was like a big move. It was like, what's this, 1990? It was, and it wasn't like you could work there automatically the way you could no, now. No, not at all. Yeah. No, not at all. And the war had just started in Yugoslavia mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. there was it, it was full of immigrants coming over from the Balkans yeah I was I was my first year in Italy was 89, 90 so I was there right. at the same time exactly and they all spoke Italian and mm-hmm. I didn't right so, so it was once again it was competitive yeah you know? yeah yeah so you learned the language well so what yeah, did you what, did you get a gig did you work under the table did you uh, I worked under the table um, first of all I worked as a uh, falegname mm-hmm Working for a friend of mine, Roberto Naspi, who's still there, who I still visit when I'm driving by in his little uh, little workshop. And then I started doing some prep cooking mm-hmm. um, at a local trattoria for a while. And then, I, you know, 
Then I got interested in food. So had you... I was always interested in food. Sure. Well, that's what I was going to ask you because normally it's (laughs) not... You can't just walk into a a restaurant off the street with no experience and get a job as a prep cook. So I'm, you know, growing up, did you cook? Oh, so they they helped you Oh, I wanted to cook. You did? But, you know, we had potatoes. Right. And potatoes and potatoes. And, you know, northern England in the, you know, 70s. You know, yeah, you know. no, it was bleak. I mean, I didn't th- taste garlic till I was 18. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I thought there was something wrong with it. I well, they, no, they boiled everything. I mean, my dad was born in Birmingham in 1935, so he grew up during <laughs> the war in rationing. I mean, he didn't, he was a, he was an adventurous eater because he grew up, um, you know, he, when he was young, he lived in London and ate tons of uh, Indian food, obviously, and right, yeah. and he loved spicy things. And but, um, he was the worst cook I've ever known because that part of his brain just never formed. Because, right, like yeah. you said, it was just no. boiled things and they reused tea bags. I mean, everything was bland and yeah, boiled, yeah, and wretched, yeah. yeah, no, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wanted to cook, I was always, always liked to eat, yeah. Yeah. I was a big eater. Yeah. You know, I always liked to eat. Um, I remember certain meals. I remember the first time I had um, a chicken in white wine. Mm-hmm. I was coming back from Manchester Airport. I was taking my sister there because she lived in Sweden at the time. And uh, I can remember just thinking, I've never had anything like this. Mm. Like, you know, and that completely changed my whole view of food. Mm. That one chicken and white wine yeah. sauce which is yeah. probably really bad but probably and but it's I also like, oh my god it's also <laughs> such a timid dish I mean it feel like on the spectrum of world cuisine right yeah no it's quite quite pale but, but the, just the fact that that was a revelation for you is, is uh, pretty great the fact it wasn't a potato was yeah. not a revelation actually, right but. exactly yeah <laughs> Yeah. So you had you had the interest, and presumably you'd done some eating in in Egypt and in the states and in other places as you traveled around. So yes, you, I did. Yeah, you, that is you true. You tasted yeah. a lot of things. Egypt less so. Mm-hmm. The food there wasn't wasn't exactly wasn't exactly great. Mm. Um, but you know, like I'd lived in London for a while then, so I was kind of right into food. And then of course you know going to Italy. Yeah. You know the first meal there we had wild boar ragu, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, that'll like, change oh your life. God. Yeah. yeah, it did change my life, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I've sat at a table, you know, with about maybe, you know, 20 Italians. You know, to the left of me was a financial guy from Rome, to the right of me was a window cleaner. Mm. And they were really good friends. And I was like, this would never happen in England, mm. ever. The no. class system there, yeah. Yeah, this yeah. would never, ever, ever happen. Yeah. Like Even that. in this country, we have our own class system. It's a little less codified than Britain's, but yeah. we, we definitely have it. Here. Yeah, it's there. Um, I mean, we don't have this. It's a, the same thing. Like I can't remember who it was who who said um, that the minute anyone from the UK opens his or her mouth, everyone immediately knows where they grew up, oh, how totally. how educated, how wealthy. All these, you know, it's all right there in the accent. No, I, you know, I still get that actually when I go to wine fairs in London. I get people walking away from me mid sentence. Wow. They just really? can't believe that I know anything about wine. Right, because you sound like a farmer from yeah the yeah, north. I've got a northern accent. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. therefore you're ignorant. It's just... It's so it's stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're an oik. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? No, it's quite shocking, you know. I mean, it happens all the time in London, actually. It's amazing. It's you just know? amazing. It's got I mean, a little bit better for a while, but now it's gone way back again. It, it, it's just like, it, I can't... I mean, there are lots of forms of prejudice, but the, the amount... And, and knowing you as I do, and knowing the work that you do, and the wines that you represent, the winemakers, it, it's... Like, if you ever needed an object lesson in how prejudice robs the person who is prejudiced of right, opportunity right. to yeah. learn, enjoy, like, broaden their horizons, it's just, it's just, it's, I don't, I mean, I understand it, obviously, but it's just, I can't get my yeah. head around how stupid it is. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. I'm so what, when you were working as a prep cook, um, did you have, I don't know, like even basic knife skills? Did you know what you were no. doing at all? They, no, just, they were just friends of friends, so they cut you some slack? Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. They didn't fire you right away? They no. Feel <laughs> this, do that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of scut work at the beginning. And yeah, then, exactly, yeah. Right. But did you work your way up, sort of, and start to get some skills? Yeah, I cooked a little bit in the end, but, mm-hmm. you know, then it closed down. How long was that total? Uh, about a year. Oh, okay. About a year, yeah. But, but, you know, it gave me this interest in... You know, real food. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like especially Italian food. And also Italian wine. Mm-hmm. You know. You know, they were very proud of the wine they served, even though some of it, even back then, I knew wasn't that good. Yeah. But, you know, they drummed into me that this wine was made by this guy from this land under this 
you know, this weather. Right. There's always a story attached. Yeah, to exactly. It. You know, you know, whether it was bad wine or not, I made right. it and it's from here. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. And so what were yeah. you drinking around Rieti in 1990? But, um, Remember anything? I've got no idea. It's all just sort of communal, like. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I would never even thought about reading a wine label. Right. Right. No, well, half of it probably that. didn't even have a label, right? It was probably in five yeah, liter, exactly. five liter yeah, jugs well, or whatever yeah, from the co-op. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's what we did in France around then, was you just go down to the co-op with your five yeah. liter you know, yeah. cask and you just fill it up, you know, yeah, like at exactly. the gas station, basically. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I don't have no idea what we're drinking. That's sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so, all right, so after the restaurant thing, would you, did you hop to another thing in Italy? No, we stayed there for a little bit and then... Um, you know, it's just getting too difficult to make a living. You know, the restaurant closed down. Um, and I was kind of like, you oh, know, what shall I do? I, I really don't want to go back to the UK. Mm. I don't know, I'll call up my sister. Right. So I call up my sister. Who's still in New York then? Yeah, absolutely. You know, come and see if I can stay there a while. So I, uh, like I moved to New York mm. with $200. Wow. A bicycle lock. <laughs> so I knew I could be a bike messenger. Right. <laughs> and a suit. Yeah. And a dream. And a dream. Actually, not really a dream. Yes, yeah. a bit of a dream. Well, a dream to get married and become an American. Um, so what did you... Did no, you... a dream not to go back to England, basically. I see. It's all about never going back. Never going back. I was never going back there again. Uh-huh. I'd seen the light, and I'm not going back there. So, yeah. That was my main aim, was to be anywhere but Britain. Mm-hmm. Or England, anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My friend Rachel had a couple friends over for dinner um, from England and we were talking about the epiphany that I had at some point probably around this time I was watching a lot of you know Mike Lee and Ken Loach and, okay and, you know <laughs> yeah, yeah of course yeah. and uh and I had this this kind of revelation talking to my brother actually where we, we suddenly realized I think he actually sort of came up with this codified you know essence of it but um is that basically every british movie ever made is simply about just how fucking horrible it is to be english <laughs> on yes. one level or yeah, another yeah, yeah yeah you know there's this no matter what of, class actually yeah yeah but that's true, the thing yeah. yeah that's the thing the richer just yeah. weirder about it and much more annoying but everybody's yeah. just this this weird like crippling self-doubt and social anxiety and just you know and i certainly know my yeah. dad had it and you know yeah and, no absolutely i mean I've got no idea what it's like now. It might be better. I think it is. I think it's relaxed a little bit. It makes for great comedy, right? Because everyone has all this rage and fear inside that needs to come out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it makes well, a friend for brilliant sarcasm that, and darkness. A friend of mine once said that the best thing about being in England is 50% of the population have the greatest sense of humor you can imagine. Yeah. And the other 50% have no sense of humor. None whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. So they, they are just fodder. You just ridicule the other 50%. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and most yeah. of those go into politics and, and you know, other <laughs> exactly. banking. Leading the country, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what did what was your big break in New York? What was the first gig? Big that, break? Well, I don't, I don't know. know. Did um, you just bounce around for a while? Um, I was a bicycle messenger for a while, mm-hmm. uh, for about three or four months. You know, that was my instantaneous weight loss program. Yeah, sure. Um, quite, quite a job, I've got to say. Quite interesting. Yeah. You know. The characters I work with. I bet. Well, and also, I mean, all that motorcycle racing probably came in handy in terms of navigating the streets and dealing well, I with... I like, you know, I'm yeah. not scared of it, really, right. to be honest with you. You know, there was only two two white guys in the whole company, uh-huh. me and an Irish lad. All the rest were basically ex-cons hmm. that all been in prison. But they were great guys. Yeah. I mean, you know... Really interesting people. Sure. Some of them were a bit crazy, but yeah, there were some really interesting characters in that company. Sure. Anyway, I did that for a while, and then um, my my sister's friend worked at a um, homeless shelter, like a drop-in centre for homeless teenagers uh-huh. near Times Square. Because uh-huh. all my all my friends and everything were all like the East Village anarchists and squatters and that right. kind of stuff. That's right. the circle I was in. Sure. You know, well, because your sister's a painter and exactly, yeah, you, you know, were on the, her couch yeah. for some time, I exactly, imagine. You know, yeah. yeah. They'd been in the East Village since the 70s mm-hmm. when it was, you know, what it was like. You know, so, um, yeah, uh, he got me a job um, making the lunches for the street kids okay. every day. So that's what I did. Um, I was like, you know, got the contract. I had to buy all the food in the morning, 
make all the lunches for the kids. You know, this was near the um, Port Authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that and um, worked in restaurants in the evening. You know, for Cooking. A while. Cooking, yeah. Yeah, on the line. On the line, yeah. Exactly. But then you had this, the chops to, to handle it. Yeah, just about. <laughs> but, you know, you know. With some on-the-job training. You know, I didn't really want to leave the contract I had, mm-hmm. you know, making the kids food, eh? It was my politics. Yeah. Be paid quite well. Yeah. So I kind of didn't really dive into the whole restaurant scene as much as I should have done. I kind of worked at restaurants for like three months, four months. Mm-hmm. You know, took three months off to go around Europe, you know, came back again, did a bit more, but just kind of, you know, realized at a certain point I wasn't, you know, I was, you know, it was tiring. Yeah. <laughs> exhausting and insane so at a certain point I kind of I'd always wanted to work at Eska mm-hmm. with Dave Pasternak yeah the chef I'd always wanted to work there and I uh, saw the job come up on Craigslist you know I thought you know what I'll do this this will be my last gig this is what I'm going to do I'm going to learn all about learn all about seafood everything there is to know you know trail wear got the job he, you know, offered me the money. I'm like, I can't do that. Hmm. I'm not working for that. No, I just walked out. Yeah. It's, it's it. a I lot, have to do something else. It's a lot of hours for pretty it's terrible money. Hours, no, it's terrible money. Yeah. No, you, you know, I mean, you can barely live on it. Yeah, and you have no life anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. So how old were you at this point? Um, I was 38. Okay. Yeah, then I was kind of, um, I decided to go to wine school. Like I'd always been interested in wine. You know, what am I going to do now? I can't carry on cooking, you know. I wasn't going to be on, you know, the, um, what's it called, the food network or anything. Right, right, right. Like, I'd learned a bit, you know. Like, I'd realised I actually had a good palate. You know, all the chefs said I had a great palate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the evening, even right at the end of, you know, they'd made the base sauce, I would season it. Mm -hmm. So, Ross, you season it. Not the sous chef, Ross, you season it. Mm. I would add salt to some of their dishes and they'd be like, oh, okay, that's okay. You know, so yeah, something about me yeah. <laughs> said I had a good palate. So I thought, well, you know, what do I do now? I'd always like maps. Mm-hmm. One of the few things I liked at school was kind of geography. Yeah, yeah. Maybe because I was dyslexic. Yeah. I love maps. I love that kind of image. Yeah. So wine, maps. Sure. Food, Italy. Palette, yeah. Palette, it all seemed to fit together. Sure. So, you know. I, um, so where did you go to school? The, um, what's it called, WSET, uh-huh. the Wine and Spirits Educational Trust, another British organisation, actually. They were a bit snobby, but, yeah. Um, you know, did the base course there, did the intermediate course. And this is training to be a sommelier, basically? or <laughs> It was just... But that's what most people go there for, not necessarily um, you. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. Um, there was all different types of people there. There was a lot of sommeliers there. Yes, there was. There's a lot of people just coming into the wine business, one or two like hobby people just wanting to know about wine. But the second part of it was quite not difficult, but you know, you had to study for it. Yeah. Know? So I studied for that and uh, I got 99% in the exam. Wow. And then I'm like, well, you know, what do I do? You know? And it was like, well, if you want to learn about wine really, you should work in a good retail store. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, I can do that, I think. So, um, I um, applied for a job at Appalachian Wines. Do you know that one in Chelsea? Yeah. Um, I worked there for a minute. That was a pretty um, good store. I used to get some stuff there. Yes. Back in the day. They're on 10th Avenue, yeah? Uh, 10th Avenue. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, they had... Next to Cook Shop. Yeah. For a minute, they had uh, they had a bunch of the Olga Raffo 90 Chinon. That was fantastic. Oh, okay. And it was, right. very reason- <laughs> nice. it was very reasonably priced. And I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I relieved them of a bunch right. of this. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, one of the first kind of natural wine stores, really, on yeah. Chamber Street. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Scott Pactor was the owner. So, like, I kind of, at the time I was doing catering mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, do some catering work because it paid $30 an hour or something. So, they like yeah. so I kind of do some catering in the evenings, work in wine stores. Then I started working at Frankly Wines, Christy Frank, mm-hmm. you know, down in Tribeca. Yeah. I kind of started when she just opened the store as well. Um, so What year are we talking now? Oh, God, I have no, no idea. Approximately, it's not. I don't you know. know. You don't know. Um, <laughs> I really don't know. 
I don't know. It all blurs into one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I started working there with Christy, building up the store, got to taste a lot. She, you know, she was a lot of fun. She was a lot of, uh, lot of help. Mm-hmm. You know, she knew more than you know more about wine than what I did. You know, she tasted a lot more. You know, she'd worked for um, she worked for Moa Hennessy or something like that. Mm-hmm. She's like some brand manager or something. So, you know, got to taste everything good. You know, would nip round to Chambers Street to buy, you know, other bottles. Learned about wine. Within about three months, soon figured out you know what I liked. Yeah, which um, was which was. Wines brought in by Dresner and brought in by Jenny Francois and uh, David Bowler. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, well, you know, because all the other stuff just tasted the same to me. Yeah. You know, all these Cabernet Sauvignon could be yeah. from anywhere. Yeah, yeah. All Absolutely that heavy anywhere. international stuff exactly, just yeah. makes your throat close up. Yeah, so I'm like, well, you know, that's what I like. And then um, I probably worked there for a couple of years, maybe. It was 18 months. I can't remember. And then decided to get together with a friend of mine to open up the Natural Wine Company in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Open up my own store. I'm in Williamsburg. And so that, you must know the year of, right? Approximately? That was 2011. 11, okay. 2011, yes, I do. That was the year my son was born. So. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, you uh, know, wine people lose track of years. Yeah. You know that, right? yeah. Because uh, the vintages, you think about all these years all the time. Yeah. I've got no idea what year it is, really. Yeah, no, I... I, I know I, it should be around 19. Right. Like, yeah. 17? No. Yeah. Well, because you yeah. know what you're pouring, which is never the year that we're living yeah, in. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we live in the past. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so 11... 11 was... Uh, that was, I think, the year that Alice's... That For the Love of Wine came out, the first... Um, no, that's not for the. I can't. All the titles of hers confused. But it was um, Naked Wine. Was that the first one? No, it was um, How I Saved the World from. Yeah, that, but I think that's the subtitle to Naked Wine. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Oh, I can't remember. Okay. This is embarrassing. And she's going to listen to this, and now yeah. she's going to be mad at me because I can't. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Take two. Yeah, um, but I oh, think. Oh yeah, that's, that's awesome. But yeah, I yeah. think eleven is the year her first book came out. Yeah. Okay. And right. so that was the year that I definitely started paying attention. Um, to natural as a specific sector. Yeah. Um, I started gravitating very hard around then away from the bigger, heavier, more opaque, higher alcohol right, yeah. wines towards yeah. things that went much better with food. First and foremost, it had to do right, with, yes. with just going, getting along with food. Huh? Secondly, it had to be, it, it had to do with not getting hammered every night. Right. Um, because there's a big difference between 15 and 12%. Um, there is, yeah. And, uh, and thirdly, it also just had to do with bringing, you know, the ethos of whatever, organic, sustainable, just, you know, low intervention, no poison. Yeah. yeah. Um, trying, just trying to limit the amount of poison in my diet. Right, exactly. <laughs> as yeah. as exactly. a general rule. Yeah. Um, so that was about that same time, I think, that it really started to click in the minds yeah. of a lot of people. And it brought it back down to maps again. Yeah. Because, you know, these other wines, what's the point of a map? Yeah. It's all the same. When you get down to micro-regional... Yeah, taste and stuff. Well, and it, it that and that goes back right. to your the you when you were first in Italy drinking just plonk with your with your boss. Yeah. Um, but when you when you start to visit the places, you know, because I love maps too, and right. and and I did sort of study, as it were, a lot when I was learning about wine by looking at maps and reading books. And um, but I have to say, man, one day on the ground in a region will do more yeah. for you than a dozen books. Absolutely. Because yeah. you see it, you smell it, you feel it, you meet a couple of people, you hear some yeah. stories, and then the dots connect in a three-dimensional way that's just not possible on, yeah. a, on, yeah. a, on a page. And, um, and then you start to, you know, you learn the stories and you, you learn some of the personalities and, and, and this one particular hillside that just has something about it. And, and, yeah. and then, then it all comes to life for you. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so were you when you opened the store? Were you traveling to Europe, or were you just were you no, just? No, not at all. No, no. I put together like a whole spreadsheet of the wines I liked and the wines I wanted. Yeah. And uh, you nailed them. Opened up the store. Um, had a nice big opening. You know, had a lot of people there, and you know, a lot of wine people said it was a, you know, pretty cool inventory. Mm-hmm. Everyone liked the wines, but even when I was putting it together, I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do this. <laughs> yeah, like I could have had enough of staring at a door because yeah. that's what you do in retail yeah. you wait for someone to walk in the door and you know it gets a bit kind of much at times you know and I don't know if I can really 
stare at not the really door. A shop, not really fight. a shopkeeper. You don't have that not, really a, not yet. Maybe yeah. now I might be. I don't mind <laughs> yes. staring at a door every now and again. Yeah. But back then, I'm like, I don't know if I'm quite ready to stare at a door for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, me and my business partner, we kind of uh, split up. Um, and um, I decided to start importing. Mm-hmm. And I'd realised pretty quickly there was not a lot of Italian natural wine. You know, I speak in a base Italian. I thought, oh, well, you know, I can maybe kind of, you know, fill this niche. Yeah. Maybe. So that's how I ended up, you know, starting Critical Mass, really. Yeah. yeah. And so how have you seen, um, you know, certainly since opening the business and now today, so that's eight years, give or take, um, the the demand, obviously the hype uh, has really exploded beyond. Yeah, the hype's exploded. Yeah, well, so, and so how do you, because how, Alice and I talked about that at some length, um, and about, you know, how we're, we're essentially living in the age of people on Instagram telling people what to drink, which is not yeah. really a, a it's, and, and, you know, that's difficult to adjust to if you're used to working in a slightly yeah. different way. Um, how, how does that, from your point of view, I mean, you're obviously going to bring in the things you believe in, the, t- the things that taste right to you because you have such a great palate. But in terms of, you know, the marketing and c- the competition aspect, which is obviously, like you said, a part of your personality and certainly part of the business because it's super competitive now, the natural space, as it were. Well, I'm very aware of that, that um, you know, when I first started getting into kind of wine, you know, Cabernet Franc was like the Instagram wine. Mm-hmm. Not that we had Instagram then, but it would have been. And then it was you know, Cru Beaujolais, mm-hmm. and then it was something else. So I'm kind the, of... The a, thing that everyone's drinking all of a sudden. Everyone's drinking all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, oh, it's great, it's fantastic. Yes, it's all right. It's, it's, it's all right. So I kind of, like, I'm well aware of that. Mm. I'm, you know, well aware of certain, certain Austrian growers right now who are quite popular. Yeah. You'd be certain labels. Yeah. And um, that's Al- great. Alice and I actually mentioned those labels. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not a huge fan of the wines myself. But yeah. Hey. But they do a thing. Yeah, they do do a thing. Um, but um, I'm aware of that. You know, I mean, right now we've got Valentina Pasolaco wines that are all over Instagram, mm-hmm. all, all over everywhere. But I realize as owning a business, you can't just have this brand. You've got to have. You got to have a solid book behind it. Yeah. That's not fashionable. That people still want to buy. Right. And that's what I've tried to do. It's not just have the really, really super popular wines, but have something kind of that's always going to sell at a certain level. You know. Just behind it. Right. Otherwise, you're too fragile. Yeah. You know. Well, because trends trend are... might change. Yeah, they're so fickle, right? So fickle, especially in New York, especially in America, especially now with Instagram. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, that's the thing. One superstar. Meters aren't cool. Oh, yeah. oh now we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, light, light reds aren't cool anymore. Oh, no. Now what are we going to do? You know, you've got to have something else. You know, you know, there's enough in the wine world, there's enough wines to have a good, solid book. Mm-hmm. I think natural wines that all different types of people will want to drink. Yeah. Not just the hipsters. Right. And when, when you started traveling back to Italy then to, to, make connections and things what was your what was your map so to speak did you have a list on your head of people you wanted to talk to or were you asking around I mean how did you um, I did some internet research I'm uh-huh. quite good at researching stuff yeah um, I visited some Italian websites natural wine websites I went to the Royal Wine Fair in 2012 in London mm-hmm. went to Vinatur I mean 2012 spoke to people found about eight wines that's what I started off with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just kind of asked those guys as well. And just kept visiting wine fairs, traveling around, asking the locals, but being super, super kind of um, critical of the wines. Mm-hmm. Not just being excited because, oh, yes, it's a good price, but still trying to be super, super, super critical of them. Mm-hmm. And did you, I mean, partly that's just because that's who you are. Um, but were you, the whole time, were you still thinking about what you said before, where you need to have a super solid roster that people can rely on? I mean, were you just, were you, like, had um, At you... that point, no, I wasn't, no. 
No, at that point... So you I weren't just, thinking that, like, you know, a particular high quality was going to be part of your brand and sort of integral to who... I know. didn't know people would even like my right. my tasty ones, to be quite honest with you. But it was important to you to be critical and to be super picky. Well, I kind of, you know, I had a kind of suspicion I knew what I was talking about, but I wasn't mm-hmm. completely convinced. Right. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I bought all this... Well, not all this wine. It wasn't that much of an inventory. Maybe $20,000 worth of wine. So I bought all this wine. Yeah. You know, let's hope someone buys it. And it took... what. Three and a half weeks before someone bought a bottle of wine. Hmm. I mean, I'd never sold wine before. Right. I had no wine contacts, really. You had some restaurant contacts, I assume, at that Not point? really, no. no, no. Not no. really, no. <laughs> no, so, you know, it was a lot of cold calling, a lot of, like, banging on windows. Wow. Jumping into Franny's as soon as the door opened and I saw Luca and, like, I dived in, you know, hiding behind trees, trying to... <laughs> looking for buyers. Really, like staking out restaurants. and <laughs> Sometimes, yes. Wow. Yeah. It was a bit like the French connection at times. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mean... So you really just went for it with very little in the way of infrastructure uh, to support... No infrastructure yeah. at all, no. It's <laughs> 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 a paper and a bicycle. You were, you were one step away right? from having bottles inside of a trench coat <laughs> that you opened up when people walked by. <laughs> you know, and... Um, but as time went on, you know, I mean, the first customer we sold to was De Spania. Mm-hmm. Um, they bought wine and then I went finally got in front of Justin at Uber and he bought like he bought seven out of ten of the wines mm-hmm. said, these are fantastic mm-hmm. and then went to see someone else and then I saw Caleb Ganser up at DB Bistro mm-hmm. he was up there then and he bought I think he bought 14 out of 15 wines mm-hmm. so he poured him out is, is that when you started to have a little more confidence yes. in your in your palate <laughs> it was that you like, knew what you were talking oh, about okay alright okay now I know what I'm doing you know right. kind of thing yeah absolutely that's good and then you know you obviously yeah we took someone else to could have put the stamp on it because you, you don't know do absolutely you? no no no, no it's the same look it's the I same thing in the art world when yeah. if a collector buys your painting then you say wow okay yeah that's yeah. very different than just making the painting but also, actually, when I had the natural wine company, or actually just before it started, I got invited to um, I don't know, Daniel Jonas's office. Mm-hmm. You know, who does the, um, what's it, La Poulet, that kind of thing, the other whole burgundy yeah. thing. I got invited to his office for, like, office tasting by my skirning rep. Mm-hmm. And um, I was there, and, you know, there's all, like, all these suits, you know, all these sommeliers in suits and everything, and I come in with my... You know, motorcycle T-shirt on and jeans, and there's a line of burger. I have no idea what they were, mm. and I'm just tasting them. Going, yeah, don't like that. Yeah, don't like that. And he goes, "What do you think?" I'm like, "I like that one, this one, that one, and that one. All the rest, nah." He's like, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah, that's what I like. I don't like the others." He's like, "Oh, interesting. Come with me then." And he led me through his office, into his back office. He opened up some crazy old burgundy for me. I have no idea what it was. Yeah. No idea to this day. I've got no idea. He goes, okay, you seem to know what you're talking about. Try this. I know one was a 1958 something or other. Good God. Wow. I wish I hadn't had a cell phone then. Yes, yeah, right. right. But, um, you know, he poured me three bottles of wine that were like, you know. Yeah, just transcendent. Yeah, that was I had. I so had, I had a hint on what I was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know? No, I had a, I had a Burgundy experience like that too. It was a it was a, a ninety Rousseau Chambertin. Yeah. That I got somebody poured me. It was late, late at night, and there was just about nobody left, and so he poured me, you know, three inches in a huge balloon glass, and it changed my life. It really was like <laughs> chasing that experience ever since. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, it was almost a psychedelic experience. You know, it really. I'd love like, to get more into Burgundy, but yeah, well, you know, God, it's so expensive. I just can't. Or, yeah, it's so you know, expensive. I've got the time, and I don't drink that much anymore. So yeah, uh, you know, yeah. So yes, I had a rough idea. I kind of knew what I was doing, but not really confirmed by anyone. Yeah. Well, and the beauty of it is that, I mean, that in some ways that's even more confidence inspiring in terms of you understanding that your palate really is um, exceptional because if you're, you're tasting a whole line of wines and the labels mean nothing to you. So you don't know what's supposed to be good or not. No, exactly. Yeah. And so you're just yeah. saying, I like these and the rest is garbage or it just doesn't do anything for me. Right, right. And it turns out you were right, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> just lucky. Right. But, but you weren't, well, you, you weren't lucky, no, no, though, because no, you, know, yeah, you yeah. tasted the difference, but also yeah. you weren't intimidated by any of the labels. No, I wasn't. Right? You don't know what's no, supposed to be no. great. And that's, I mean, people, I mean, there's so much kind of confirmation bias built into a lot of prestige wines. Yeah. Where people are to be moved by it or blown away by it. Um, 
and you know, it's a head screaming eagle, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's just another gigantic Cali wine, but my God, is it not like that much better right, than or right. Cine yeah. or so many of yeah, these other yeah, cult yeah. things, you know I mean? Yeah. First of all, they're all gigantic and they just yeah. crush your food. But second yeah. of all, they're just they're, they're qualitatively, there's just, I don't know, man, yeah. <laughs> I'm not seeing it. Not on, not on. Uh, and so it's that, that total I mean, ignorance can really be an asset in that, in that regard. Because yeah. you just go with what you like. Yeah. And that's the yeah. whole point at the end of the day is pleasure, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I have it... a rough idea what a burgundy should taste like. Yeah. I'm no, no, I'm not bit... saying you are a total yeah. neophyte, yeah. but I just mean like not knowing the details of the region yeah. or the producers. I mean, even now if I'm looking for a wine, you know, say like I find a wine in Italy, like I've got a rough reference point of what an Alianico should smell like. Sure. What an Abiello should smell like. You know, and, and, you know, if it doesn't smell like that, then I probably won't buy it. So I'm a little bit more conservative on that kind of score. Right. You know. Well, but that's, that also... That's what orange wine really sometimes gets in the way of the varietal and everything else. Because yeah, it can. it's very hard to tell really what it is. Sometimes, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, people want it right now. So. But, but that's the other... I think that's the other side of the, of the palate thing is the... And, and the, the, you know, your definition of quality um, is that... True to type matters, uh, and a big part of what makes your book and and what makes good natural wine in general good for me is that there is a true to typeness. It doesn't like it. There's the international style where everything just kind of tastes like movie candy and and right. and, 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 and and soda, um, but then there's the 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 sort of international natural style where everything just tastes like sweaty ass and you can't tell anything right. apart. Yeah. What, what you're doing is finding the things that are true to type. They very much taste like the grape and the place. Um, but then they don't have any uh, of the sort of adulteration or generic qualities that a lot of the kind of factory people right. do. And so, yeah. you know, that, but that's a really small subset of things. It is, yeah, it is. You it's know, hard but, to find. It is, but when you do find it, you know, yeah. when you do find like a natural burgundy or something, when it tastes, just tastes like right. a burgundy, and if you didn't know, you wouldn't, you know, nothing about it screams like, oh, I'm full of Brett and, right. you know, yeah. and VA yeah. and, and right, exactly, you know, yeah. it's, so it's like a burgundy, but it has all this Brett and VA added to it, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. which is not what you want. Yeah. Yeah, and true. and so I think that that's um, for the challenge, and you know, from my point of view as a buyer, uh, you know, who doesn't have a huge amount of money to throw out this stuff, is to find things that that represent, you know, in the case of like a Nebbiolo, which can get really expensive really fast. Yeah, yeah. You know, something that yeah. has that yum, that that that, that like latexy, yeah. you know, magic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But doesn't break the bank. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what, what happened with that guy? I can't remember. Again, I don't do names well. Um, but you had that fantastic Nebbiolo, um, Scavero. Yeah. Scavero. He also makes the great Rosé, right? Um, he did make a great vintage of Rosé. Doesn't do it anymore. (laughs) The next vintage wasn't so great, so Uh. we didn't have it, but, um, we are getting it again this year. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yes, he's still making his great... Because uh, that big red of his was phenomenal. He's making Barbera di Asti. Oh, great. He makes a Dolcetto. He makes a Sauvignon. He makes a um, Nebbiolo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Which we still have. Yeah, you had that at Peripheral, I think. Uh, yeah, I think Andrea came, didn't he? Yeah, yes, he, he did. did come. Yeah, he, he did. did come, yeah. 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 Great uh, winemaker. Yeah. Good guy. Um, super knowledgeable about wine. And he's interested in other wines as well not just his wines. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of growers, you know, they're just going to know their region or they know their wines or their friend's wine. Andre is interested in trying everything from everywhere. Every time we go out now in Italy, he always looks at Chateau Moussard mm-hmm. because I bought him a bottle once and mm. loves it. <laughs> He's like, you know, sometimes it's not that easy to find in no. Italy, but um, he always looks for it, yeah. you know. Yeah. He kinda, you know. He's got a very broad palate. That's Andrea. great. Yeah. He does, yeah. And the, um, so in terms of inroads outside of Italy, um, and I'm excited to taste the things here that I haven't yet, but um, in terms of, because you had talked about Portugal, you said yeah. you weren't finding much in France, but you had been going to Spain and Portugal more. I know you have some pretty great Spanish. Uh, yes. Yeah. So what's, what's kind of new or on the horizon or what's exciting, like new discoveries? We just picked up um, a Bodega Cueva. Mm-hmm. I think Alvaro's got them for New York. Mm-hmm. But we've got them for Florida, California, and everywhere else, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're making interesting stuff. Alumbro is another grower from the west side of Madrid. He 
It's making some cool stuff in Anfora and what have you. Hmm. We've got Bodega Gratius. That's a, that's a crowdfunded winery down in Merthia. Really? Um, cool people. Um, trying to keep, keep Bobal there as a varietal. Trying to keep some local varietals going because mm-hmm. the big multinationals are buying up all the land down there because it's dirt cheap mm-hmm. and just f- filling it full of Tempranillo. Pulling Tempranillo, out all just the all Tempranillo. Yeah, then sending it back to Rioja. Uh. <laughs> As they do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're working what's, with What's the native grape you're talking about? Bobal. Bobal, okay. Bobal, yeah. I'm not sure I've ever had that. We've got one here somewhere, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah it's great. Um, well, it's not great. It's good. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's good. It's a good grape. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we're working with those guys. Portugal, we just picked up another grow up near Braga, up in the Vino Verde region. Tiny farm, two and a half hectares. You know, we just picked up a, a, a grower from Hungary as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. What are they growing? They are growing a varietal, which I cannot remember the name of it, because mm-hmm. I'm not really good with names either. But it's very good. <laughs> and it's red. Red? And it's not here yet, but it oh, will be hopefully okay. in about two months. Oh, fantastic. If we can figure out a way to get it out of Hungary and onto a ship, uh-huh. which has proved to be a little bit challenging, but we will get there. Um, um, I sent Ruby to Georgia mm-hmm. last year. Oh, fun. Paid for by the Georgian Trade Commission. Wow, nice work. She went over there. She found some cool wine. Yeah. Don't ask me to tell you what it is. No, but have you picked some up then? Yeah. You've met so okay, so that... she found some and I trusted Elmo Ruby to, you know, find it. Yeah, she's great. And, and you can she got a good And so that's coming in soon? Um it's here in California already. Oh great. It only went to California. Oh, okay. You know, a small amount. Mm-hmm. But you know, Ruby's selling the heck out of it and Fantastic. Uh, you know. That was good. That's it, really. Hmm. Um, Do you see now, because it's now um, you know, it's been a while since this kind of popped up. Um, as a thing in certainly in France, you know, with um, Bobino and, and the others, and yeah, um, so you now have a generation of people who sort of have come up in this new world of, of you know with this with this valid and increasingly popular style. Do you, do you see more and more kind of young people kind of gravitating towards it, not just for hipster reasons, but but the same way people farm organically and the same people people want you know the same reason people want to connect with. Some of these less known native grapes and... You know, that's one of the things, you know, that's one of the downsides about being a wholesaler. You don't really get to kind of be face-to-face actually with the customers that often. Mm-hmm. You know, we only hear it kind of second-hand from the retailer, mm-hmm. you know, or from the sommelier. When you're in retail, you actually get to talk to people about right. the product. I mean, I don't do in-store tastings that much anymore, but when I do, I love it. Yeah. Because I can really kind of get a feedback of what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to tell you, you know, mm-hmm. you know really. Well, I, I actually meant from the grower's point of view. Are there more young farmers or winemakers? Oh, who definitely. Are... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Totally, yeah. Every single wine fair or whatever, there's always someone new there. Yes, always. And mm-hmm. young. And do they have... Um... Are most of them kind of apprenticing under other people and then splitting off to do their own yes, thing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Is that yeah. sort of how it goes? Yeah. And we so just picked up a new grower from Abruzzo, mm-hmm. um, um, Alessio and uh, Mateus. He's a um, sommelier. Mm-hmm. Mateus works at a big winery. So I used to opt out of everything. Um, I think they've got three hectares, making four cuvées in the early 30s, you know. You're building up this new business. Yes, that is happening. That's good. And that, I mean, it would seem that that's solving the problem of supply, right? Because every time you go back, there are going to be some new talented people, one hopes, making yeah. things. And so yeah. every time you go back, you can be pleasantly surprised by a new producer. Yeah. Which means yeah. you can you can keep building the roster. Yeah. We just picked up a new grower from Veneto as well, making a Prosecco. Oh, yeah? Over there, oh, that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't yeah. had that one either. Five hectares. High sighting uh, Prosecco. Wow. Completely biodynamic. They only make about, what is it, four and a half thousand bottles a year, but you know, oh, it's good stuff. Tiny. It's selling. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, the problem is, as soon as you leave, I'm going to open all these bottles and just do. go at it. <laughs> the rest of the day is going to be shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I should do. I should some oranges in it, some peaches. Yeah, big sangria, some the cheap brandy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Awesome>. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, well, that's so. Um, any particular exciting kind of news or anything on the horizon, or just kind of chugging along and doubling your business every year? Uh, that's pretty much how it's going right now. Yes, um, I'm hoping to take my sales reps to Italy mm-hmm. in August. All of them on a little road trip. Fun. Um, yes, <laughs> that that should be exciting for them anyway. Um, no, I mean just gonna, you know, we're opening up some new states. I'm going to New Mexico actually on Thursday. Yeah. To visit some new uh, distributors down there. Great. Just going down there for the night actually. Mm-hmm. It's a bit crazy, but I am. Um, I convinced Isabel Ligeron to have a raw wine fair in Miami this year. Oh wow, fun! Because we found a new uh, distributor down there. When's that going to be? That's November. In between New York and LA. Okay. Just for one day. Down in Miami Beach. Cool. Somewhere in Miami, anyway. I'm not sure where, but actually it is in Miami. Yeah, so, that's great. You know, you know, she asked me where I think, you know, we should do it. I'm like, well, let's do it in, you know, do it in Florida, do it in Miami. You know, who doesn't want to go to Florida in, you know, November? Well, absolutely, and you and know? and it's and a, it's a big market. It's a big market, and it's getting bigger. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of cities in Florida. A lot of cities, and, uh, a lot of restaurants, lot of and restaurants. a lot of tourists who eat at restaurants. Yes, there is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. The locals, I don't know about. But anyway. yeah, some of them do. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so that's good. Um, no, you know, found about 10 new growers this year. Yeah? Yeah. Stumbled into an Italian natural wine fair in Paris a few months ago. Hmm. Just on a hint from someone, a little, little hint, and it was great. Yeah. That's it. That's exciting, man. Yeah. Thanks for coming by and talking to me. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the wine. (laughs) You're welcome. Ross Bingham of Critical Mass Selections, criticalmassselections.com, Critical Mass Selections on Instagram. I'm Cookblog on Instagram, acookblog.com, cookpod.net for this. Theme music by my son, Milo Barrett, smilob.com. Please subscribe. Please rate us five stars. Please tell your friends and please tune in next week. <laughs>